Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. Episode 28 finds us surveying a bunch of bands who trade in the business of ridiculous non-sequitur song titles. Or wait, that's that's not really it, is it? That's not what we're doing. No. It kind of is. <laughs> but it could be. It kind of is, and I think that'll come out. <laughs> now, tonight on Radical Research, episode 28, we're going to be talking about our math rock. So... I don't want this to be misconstrued as a survey of math rock, as a genre, as a sound in itself. This is not a Wikipedia entry on math rock. In fact, only two of the bands that we're going to discuss tonight are really canonical math rock artists. This is math rock seen through the prism of radical research. So we're going to be dipping back in the 70s and we're going to be going all the way through the 80s, the 90s, and into the early aughts. And we're going to be talking about bands. Um, I, I am personally very fond of all these artists. Jeff is fond of most of them and certainly curious about the ones that have yet to capture his heart. But we're going to be talking about rock that is twisted and bent and metrical and mathematical and clever and weird. We're going to see some overlap into punk. We're going to see some overlap into metal. Um, in fact, we're going to be full-on metal at one point, but there's an intersection with another artist that will feature around the same time. So I, I think it's apropos to feature them. Uh, that band is Confessor, uh, if you're into spoilers. <laughs> so you kind of described what math rock will be and kind of what to what to expect with these snippets and everything but isn't music itself no matter what kind of music it is isn't itself a form of mathematics sure so how do we separate that you know which is counting and patterns and, and overtones and, and and time signatures and you know the notations that composers make how do we separate that from what math rock is kind of commonly known as and then a sort of our own definition as well how do we piece that out well, I mean, so math rock is going to place a particular emphasis on complex mathematics within a musical framework. So, yes, all music is fundamentally mathematical, even pop music. You're still counting in four. Um, the music that we're going to talk about approaches math with a certain amount of rigor. So you're going to be looking at odd time signatures. You're going to be looking at modulations, both in tempo and time. Um, these are artists, the ones we're going to cover tonight, and also the others who are just known more generally as math rock. I mean, these are people for whom kind of the architectural framework of the music takes precedent over nearly everything else. But when it's really magical and when it really lines up, and I think what we're going to find tonight, because I think our taste is vectored toward this, but like where the, the real like lightning happens is when you get that mix of emotion and, and science that the alchemy and, and mathematics combined. Yep. Acrobatics, abrasion. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of gets us into King Crimson a little bit, doesn't it? I think it does. Why start there? Or, or is, it, is, it just, is that just so patently obvious that's a stupid question? I don't think so. I mean, because we could have started elsewhere. We could have started with Egg. We could have started with Gentle Giant. Um, right. We could have started with Yes. King Crimson, I, I think more than any of the other like major bands in the 70s, is responsible for laying the groundwork for a number of other rock and metal subgenres that would emerge subsequently. I mean, you look at a song like Starless. I mean, in one song, you've basically got the, the beginnings of post-rock 
you know, math rock, noise rock, all these other things that would be developed much more fully in, in the 80s and 90s. So, so I think it's perfectly appropriate that we begin the story with King Crimson. Totally. And, you know, you're right on about Starless. I think that's like so foundational for so much that came after. Um, you, you, we could probably do an episode on that one song itself. But we were going to play that or play that part that you're talking about, sort of the back half of it. We decided to go with Fracture. And yes. I think that'll also be obvious kind of why. This is from uh, 1974's Starless and Bible Black album. Yes. This and is, also, as a side note, listeners, if you want to have a really good evening, go fill up a Mapo Dofu and then go watch King Crimson play Starless live. <laughs> We've done it and we endorse it. <laughs> Indeed. This is Fracture.
So when I think of math rock, I, of course, that brings to mind mathematics. And when I think about mathematics, I think of, you know, the, the higher math, you know, algebra, beyond that, trigonometry, all that stuff. And that stuff's just always such a complicated language. And then we listen to this song by King Crimson, this like interweaving that's happening. It's, it's, just, it's like complicated tapestry or something, you know, yes. warp so threads. What, what do you hear in Fracture that ties, that, that justifies this song in King Crimson sort of as like, you know, math rock and its nativity? Probably, well, like I said, the interweaving, I think that kind of surprising thing where like, you know, a couple guys are doing this thing for about 17 bars and then they'll interweave like a couple measures of somebody else coming in for, you know, doing something completely different and then kind of joining up and then just, you know, kind of forming a whole new shape out of that, if that makes right. any sense. Yep. It's it's highly visual stuff, but it's also really surprising stuff. Um, and I think math rock has always sounded to me like something that you're on the edge of your seat. You don't really know where it's going to go next. You're also thinking about it sort of intellectually, maybe more so than you would other music. I mean, right. it's, certainly it's emotional. I think King Crimson has plenty of emotion and color in their in their music, but I hear them as just something to be studied, I guess. And, and um, we could probably apply that sort of study to you know, any of the later math rock bands. So I, I don't know if that answered your question, but... Yeah, sure. I hear a lot of attitude in it, too. It's pretty bold. It's pretty brazen, right? Yeah. You can't is. play this stuff in a timid or subtle manner. No, 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 no. I mean, you hear the conviction and even the, the quietest notes. Yeah. And Fracture has a lot of those kind of passages. It was pretty cool to hear that one solo uh, Robert Fripp guitar figure out of the context of our original show intro, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah. when I heard it, I was like, oh, are we starting? Right. I, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I suppose Radical Research listeners who are familiar with the history of the show, which our history is but one year old. But yeah, they'll, they'll recognize that because it, it did pop out at me as well because I've heard that a lot now. Dear listeners, greetings and calculations from your sponsor, Lamentations of the Flame Princess Weird Fantasy Role-Playing, the mind-bending and merciless tabletop role-playing game. Did you know that Lamentations is broadly compatible with any popular RPG that uses classes and levels? This means LOTFP adventures and supplements can be used with 5th edition games. Through the end of April 2019, Lamentations is giving you their best deal yet. You can get the ebook in PDF format of the introductory adventure Tower of the Stargazer for just one US dollar. It's the perfect adventure to bridge the gap between normal fantasy into weird fantasy. Click the link in the show notes for this episode on the Radical Research website to get the offer. Yes, Tower of Stargazer. We, Lamentations and Radical Research, fully endorse 70s Rainbow. We're not sure we'll do an episode on any of that, but for now, enjoy your Cobayan bliss. Let's move across the channel to France, or, uh, uh, you know, in fact, magma comes from a fictional land, if we're talking uh, to the creator. Um, That's true. But yeah, this uh, this next bit is from an album, I'm probably not going to pronounce it the way, is it Christian Vonder? Um, yeah. Would uh, would pronounce it, but uh, it's Udu Voodoo, Udu Voodoo. Good enough. <laughs> yeah, good enough for me. But for me, Ma uh, yeah. Magma is one of these bands I've always been a little bit on the fence on, simply because they have a whole lot of vocal, and um, some of the bombast is over much for even me, who 
you know, I can handle some bombast. Good Lord. But um, magma just always has has a, has a couple elements that just are overwrought for me. But I, I tell you, this this we're going to play two passages from this song from Udu Udu. Uh, this track is called The Futura. And uh, there's there's no disliking this thing. The, the, and this and this sweetly, sweetly fits into, I think, the math rock context.
Yeah, so we gave you a glimpse into a 17-minute piece of music. Um, and Udu Voodoo is not Magma's best album. If anything, uh, the live records they released in the early 70s, mid 70s, the BBC record is mm. completely phenomenal. Mm. Um, and, you know, MDK, Kantarkosh, better introductions to the band. But I, whatever your price of admission, it's worth it for De Futura. Um, I was on a message board one time, long, long ago, and Magma came up and this piece came up. And this guy described it as Meshuggah for the 70s. And I took that to mean that Christian Vonder is laying down this, like, just sinister 4-4 groove, just nasty funk. And then Yannick Top, the, who's one of my favorite bassists ever. I, like, adore the guy. And great tone. And the rest of, yeah, yeah, amazing tone, exactly. And the rest of the band are playing well outside of 4 on top, so you've got this sort of rolling polymetric uh, framework in this song, and then it goes a number of other places throughout it. Um, but I mean, this is like to me, you know, like we started with Fracture, and and like this is sort of the like next evolutionary step. Yeah, and I think I think the bass tones are are well matched because John Wetton with King Crimson had one of the best bass tones ever too. Uh, oh yeah, that okay. kind of blown out, you know, barely controlling this animal sort of thing. Um, it's funny you mentioned the Meshuga thing. I, as we were listening, I wrote in my notes because you and I didn't really uh, plan this episode out maybe as much as we might have other ones in terms of like what we were going to kind of talk about together. And right. so, I, so I'm sitting here writing stuff, and I wrote four four in lots of places, but like Meshuga, they're overlaying riffs through, um, <laughs> you know, the parts and so. Not only you say that, but you know you, you mentioned this guy on this message board who said that. So I, I guess we're hearing that same thing because it's yeah. it's like this deceptive thing where you're hearing something as being more disjointed than maybe it is. At least the foundational thing is four four, and that's not very math. That's just very basic rock. That's very basic rhythm, right? Um, the most basic in music, really. Well, what's so cool is it it gives it this like primal edge because yeah. your head just keeps nodding, in right? Fact, my wife is sitting on the couch, uh, either texting or on social media, and I caught her while we were playing it, just nodding her head. And it's like, it, it is, it's just nasty and funky, and then all this, like, intricate rhythmic stuff is happening on top of it. Right, right. I mean, and, and some the way some of the players are sort of playing through the bars, it isn't conventional, right. and it kind of kind of tricks the ear in a way. And I, I've always thought Meshuggah did that, because that's the grand sort of not secret, but sort of the trick of Meshuggah is actually sure. a lot of that stuff's in 4-4. It doesn't, you know, they don't have that reputation of being a 4-4 band, but actually a lot of it is. It's just the way they mess with that time signature is the genius, I think. Yeah, and Thomas Hawke says, like, that he keeps that four going on the hi-hat, like, j just so everybody in the audience has something to hold on to. <laughs> what, what, all the, like the superimposed madness is going on. I just wish I didn't dislike Meshuggah's vocals as much as I do. That damn barking dog. I, I wish you didn't either. I know, you're a huge fan. and I'm, I, I used to really like them a lot, but that voice, that guy's voice is so boring for me. I, I can't. Yeah. Eh, sorry. Maybe, that, maybe, okay. that, maybe that's like point counterpoint someday, you know. One day we can't always. You know, maybe it's like like Swedish vocalist named Jens, because a lot of people say that about Jens Reden and Nagelfar. Oh uh, well, yeah, he's kind of like yeah. like a one trick pony. Uh, sure, 
Sure. I like both of them. Whatever. It's okay. Yeah. Moving away from Nagelfar. Mo- uh, from Nagelfar to Melvin's. This is how we do it. Um, <laughs> we're going to move to Melvin's. This is um, this is a band that, you know, I, I don't think you could call them textbook math rock or squarely in the genre. Although, in, because they've done so much since their formation and since their early albums that are really not that. And they've been fascinating in just about every era. But those first three albums, we're talking about Gluey Porch Treatments from 1986, Ozma from 89, and Bullhead from 91. These albums are basically math rock. I don't think there's any way you could call them anything else. I mean, certainly they're sludgy. Uh, There's an element of doom to them. There's an element of that really slow, harrowing black flag, maybe. Um, yeah, totally. Like, yeah, my war era black flag. You can hear a lot of influences, you know. I mean, a guitar tone that, you know, at least on Bullhead was like almost St. Vitus-ish. And there's certainly oh, some totally. Sabbath there as well. But the the thing about Melvin's in the late 80s, early 90s era was they had moved so far away from their kind of punk origins. Because when they, mm-hmm. their early stuff is just really forgettable punk. Like the, the, the mangled, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the mangled demo stuff. It's, you know. It wasn't their calling. And then they found their calling. And this calling was this strange thing of some of the, some of the elements we've already mentioned, a big kiss influence, apparently. Uh, and then they mixed up all this into these elongated riff phrases. I mean, these songs and albums had these obtuse, hard-to-follow rhythms, these really long strands of like, riffs yeah. that, that you could just barely yeah. follow. The um, phrases, yeah, no, like, uh, but Tre- Trevor Dunn, um, who played with uh, with Buzz and Phantomon, obviously, and Mr. Bungle, an extremely accomplished and studied musician, oh, yeah. once said, Buzz is a musician that doesn't know a lot about theory, but is extremely sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll hear that in uh, the little snippet we're going to play. Uh, you can well, hear that all over the three albums we mentioned. I've got a little tie-in for you, Jeff. Sure. Because you and I, yeah, okay, so like you and I didn't talk about this. So you you play a part in why I selected this song, because and it's even more interesting because it happened because of a champs piece that you wrote for Maniacs in '98, uh-huh. and you and Josh Smith were talking about math, and you guys started going back and forth about math and early Melvins and and to that I mean I'd been listening to Melvins for years at that point and I never really thought about it in those terms and so like I was thinking going back I was like we're gonna talk about the champs and we're like I need you know we were talking about doing a no means no bit but we just did a no means no show so I'm like who in the 80s should be represented obviously the Melvins yeah oh yeah like you, you, you were the impetus for this. Uh, and, you know, speaking of the champs, who we'll get to later, but um, here's one of those non-sequitur or just total nonsense uh, song titles. This, uh, this is a song from Gluey Porch Treatments. And that's that album title also ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. um, but this, this song is called Exact Paperbacks. And, you know, you can't, you can't puzzle anything out that makes any sense from that, right? I mean, no. <laughs> Exact Paperbacks. <laughs> Short song. <laughs> One of the shortest songs we've ever played, and we're gonna. Well, that's the other like puzzling thing about early Melvins mm, mm-hmm. is how complex they are, but they're still like basically operating at a punk rock scale. Yeah, the first two albums were built of like really short songs, like seventeen, yeah. eighteen, nineteen songs each album. They're, they're like haiku. Yeah, yeah, and then they retained the math, they retained the complication, uh, but lengthened the songs for Bullhead. 
which to me is the ultimate Melvin's album because you have the mass stuff, you have the heaviness still. In fact, it's even heavier. Bullhead's one of the Bullhead's most obnoxiously heavy albums of all time. Yet they were expanding their scope. And Super they were kind heavy of, cover too. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Idiosyncrasies everywhere with the Melvins for yes. sure. Or I should say Melvins. We don't we don't want the article. Oh, yeah, we don't yeah, want the article yeah. there. Um, yeah, let's listen to all 43 seconds or whatever it is of exact <laughs> paperbacks. That just gives you a little taste. There's a lot of really puzzling math throughout those first two Melvin's albums. Stuff that I think is even stranger and harder to follow than, than that. Um, but that gives you a taste. Uh, I wanted to mention that I saw the Melvin's for the first time on the Bullhead tour uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. And their bassist was, I think, a guy named Tom. from. Uh, he was like a, the head of Boner Records. And um, he was really? just... Yeah, he was just kind of filling in. He was this kind of like tall, lanky, sort of dorky looking dude. Had a white Explorer base, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it, it was just so weird looking. And it just worked so well with, of course, you know, Buzz on the other side of the stage. And, um, you know, he looked like he was really struggling to kind of get through this. So, I mean, he played well. He got through it. But you could tell he was just so concentrating on all these parts and all these weird, weird, weird riffs. It's ridiculous stuff, man. It, it is. And, like, and and my friend uh, Tom and I met him after the show and we asked him like, well, you know, gosh, he because he, he was just filling in because this is the time when Lori Black was sort of in and out of the Melvins quite a bit. So you, you never knew what basis you were going to get. And huh. and he uh, he was there filling in for her on this tour. And he was like, yeah, I just, you know, it's kind of last minute. And, the, you know, the guys asked me to do it. And, like, I'm, I'm just kind of filling in. And we were like, is it really hard to play this stuff? Like, it, it sure seems like it would be. He's like, he's like, he's like yeah, I, it's, I, it, it's, it's really hard. Like, he was just like, he was still, like, having trouble with it even after the show. Like, he, 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 he looked like, real stressed. Nearly enough credit for, like, the sophistication of their early music. Definitely not. Yeah, definitely not. Um, and of course, they've they've continued to astound and amaze and just sort of, um, you know, roll through some really incredible changes over the years. And uh, oh, yeah. a band we hold in very high esteem. Viva Melvins. Viva Melvins. Moving on. All right, let's... Uh, let's win let's some take, bread. Let's take this uh, party um, into uh, into the 90s. Into Raleigh, North Carolina, or somewhere. Are they Richmond? Uh, they're from uh, yeah, they're from Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. Okay, I think I think of breadwinner, and I think of yeah. Raleigh, North Carolina, because I talked to Penn, their guitarist, Penn Rollins, yeah, after a Confessor show, and he was talking about how he thought the first Decroitson was the only Decroitson album. Yeah, I remember that he was wearing like a leather vest and nothing else. Yeah, 
Yeah. Was that? Am I right? You are exactly right. It was That's pretty awesome. He had a strange look, but it was it was Penn from Breadwinner, and that was cool, uh, despite his awkward opinions on Decroitson. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about Breadwinner from Richmond, Virginia, who pretty short life. I would very I, short life. But really, one of the foundational math rock bands, right? I mean, this, this, like this is kind of near the beginning of where, like, you know, it's like the Louisville thing with like Bastro. But I mean, Breadwinner is very, very early on in the whole math rock conversation. Mm-hmm. But when did Burner come out? It was released in '93, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think that it was so it was it was a collection of seven inches. So Burner's not an album per se. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I believe it came out in either ninety three or ninety four. And we're I'm gonna, leaning toward ninety three for obvious reasons. Okay. And we're gonna listen to all of Tourette's as well, because this is yes. another another shorter thing. Man, that's fascinating. I mean, the the, the riffs. I, th- yes. I think the ear goes to the guitar first because it's just it's kind of a it, it's a nice slicing tone. There's a richness to it, even though it's pretty raw. But it's doing some great stuff. But the stealth part of that band is the drumming. Oh, dude, yeah. He's absolutely. just really messing things up and having a lot of fun, making it as quirky as possible. Yeah, and it's kind of like it kind of foreshadows a bit of the next artists that we're going to play but like yeah it gives you a sense of how i mean i i guess this is i mean this is kind of a foregone conclusion but like how important the drumming is and all this stuff because it's like you, you could have a you know a fairly like straightforward riff and the drummer has the latitude to completely alter that and right. to play with it and be as impish as possible. And like, yeah, in the hands of a lesser drummer, that song might have been a little less interesting. I don't, the guitar work is still fantastic. And Penn has a very metallic guitar tone. Oh, definitely. Um, yep. 
Yeah, I remember um, one of my favorite writers from the the late '90s, a guy named Aaron Burgess, who used to write for alter for uh, Alternative Press. He was like, math rock was his thing. He was like way into like dazzling Killmen and like the whole like skin graft scene. He was really into like flying Lutenbachers and stuff. Mm. But obviously, super into Breadwinner too. And he said that Breadwinner was like basically like the most mathematical parts of like late 80s Voivod like distilled down into like two minute songs. I definitely heard Voivod in that for sure. Oh, yeah. And in fact, we, we probably could have featured them on this episode. We, we're not. No real reason, probably because we're waiting to do the epic seven hour uh, three yeah, part yeah. Voivod episode someday. But you know, <laughs> if you look at Dimension Hatros or Nothing Face, there's all kinds of math all over that stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, even listen to the chord voicings in that song. I mean, they obviously... I mean, Penn obviously is listening to Voivod. Yes. And probably those Confessor demos. And we're going to jump to Raleigh, North Carolina this time for real. We're going to just play this a little bit, and then we're going to discuss. We're going to sort it out. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess. I, well, we'll try. It's just I, that. I, I, yeah. Honestly, like listening to this, I was more puzzled than I was before. That's the conundrum of this song. Uh, this band and album, yes, but this particular song, this was this is the toughest thing Confessor ever did uh, in terms of like, you figure it out. Go <laughs> I, I have fun, figure <laughs> it out. This is the title track from 1991's Condemned.
Yeah, that drummer is Steve Shelton. The band, again, is Confessor. The song and album is Condemned. Uh, there's that great video of Steve Shelton explaining, really deconstructing the drum part in that song. I have not seen that. Oh, wait, you haven't? No. Oh, wow. Okay, look it up because I remember it. Is it, it on YouTube? It's got to be. I, it, it, okay. it started to kind of make the rounds in the early, early YouTube days or maybe just right before that. I, I just remember talking about it with a number of people like Matt Johnson, I know, and a couple other people. I, I swore maybe you were in on that, but I guess not. You would have yeah. remembered that. Anyway, there's a great video where he completely deconstructs what's happening in that song. Uh, and whether you're a drummer or not, you know, it was fascinating. And he does a really good job explaining the details of that drum part. Because as you heard, it's alien. It's Martian. It's it's nuts. And after you watch it, you're like, okay, I kind of get it. But still, how the fuck do you do that? You know, like, Dude, it, I sat in my office this week. And played it over that the intro, just the intro, okay, over and over, and tried to count it, and I could never figure it out. And then I went online to try to find a transcription, and I couldn't find one. So maybe this video is the key to my puzzle. It exists. Yet, like I said, it remains a mystery. He explains it, like what he's doing, but it you're still like left going, yeah, that's all well and good. And I kind of, you know, on paper, I get that. But you listen, but, you're listening. How do you do that as a person? Like, what, how do you develop the dexterity and coordination to pull that off? And that song and album, it, it gets a lot of credit in math circles for the drumming. Uh, but you have to give it up for the guitarists and bassists as well, who are playing their own special role in all of that weirdness. Well, that's a, like kind of the thing about Confessor is that your ear immediately goes to Steve Shelton, and then it goes to Scott Jeffries. Right. But then the rest of the band kind of gets neglected. But, I mean, they're just as much, you know, cogs in this incredible sound world as, as Jeffries and um, and Shelton. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like, he's yeah. like completely, like, mutated trouble riffs and things, you yeah. know? Yeah. No, great, great, great band. Can't say enough good things about Condemned. Uh, and you and I were lucky enough to see that reunion show that still one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. The, the second show was good, but that first one was just... Yeah, the first one was electric, yeah. Beyond imagining, yeah. Shelton went on to join forces with Penn Rawlings of Breadwinner yep. uh, in a band called Loincloth. Certainly math rock cred all over the place there. Unsurprisingly, stuff, Loincloth kind of sounded like a mixture of Breadwinner and Confessor. <laughs> I mean, and that's... How good is that? Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. Tech metal. We just covered Spiral Architect. Of course, we've covered Cynic and Believer and Pestilence on this program. We will continue to revolve around tech metal because it's one of our favorite subgenres uh, or sub subgenres. Is tech metal always math metal? I mean, will it? Will, will tech metal necessarily always have to have math in it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay. I mean, um, but there's another like dimension to tech metal. There's an at like. The thing, too, is like, you know, tech metal is uh, an ill-defined genre in a lot of ways. And it's very it's more malleable to my mind than most people would consider it. You know, you have a lot of um, despots and zealots that are hardline about what tech metal is. Mm -hmm. and, and I am an apostate in their eyes because my view of tech metal is much broader than that. Mine um, would include a certain amount of atmosphere, like, for instance... To me, um, Oblivion's Nemesis is like, you know, the apotheosis of tech metal. It's not entirely a mathematical record, but it has this atmosphere, this spacey edge 
that just sounds techy, I guess. And, and it's also, it, it has all of that. You're exactly right. And I agree with you. I think our definition aligns in terms of what we think of as tech metal. But also Oblivion right. is, is that plus it's got that cold laboratory thing. Exactly. Which, yeah. you know, Voivod's yeah. Nothing exactly. Face falls into that as well. So, yeah, I mean, there is that sort of scientific, you know, laboratory atmosphere. But, yeah, I mean, tech metal, you know, by virtue of what it is, like, has to be complex. It has to be dexterous. And and that, like, you know, in, in order to sort of exhibit those qualities, you have to move outside of the bounds of, you know, conventional metric approaches. This also um, explains why tech metal and, and math rock are genres that aren't inhabited by a ton of bands. Right. Because it's hard. Yeah, and it, it requires a lot of dedication. Yeah. And like, not only like, I mean, you know, there are probably a lot of players. In fact, we know it, like, because we talked about Vinnie Kaliuta sort of in this context, you know, the, like true masters of their instruments who could do just, just about anything. Um, you know, somebody that's really, really skilled at their instrument could shred for days. But to like actually turn, to, to synthesize that degree of technique into actual music is an entirely other thing. That narrows the playing field considerably. Totally. And some, a lot of these bands don't have careers per se. They didn't live off the music. Uh, that probably defines, I would, I'm looking at the next five, the last half of these. All of these bands probably didn't make a huge living from, uh, from what they did. And they're either defunct or, or struggling. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's move on. We're going to stay sort of in the South. I don't know. As a deep Southerner, I'm always sort of ambivalent about this, this city's position in the South. I've talked to someone from this city, and, um, <laughs> and they share a similar ambivalence. I, is it Midwestern? Is it Southern? That's a discussion for another time. Home to greats such as Hunter S. Thompson and that spendthrift Johnny Depp with his $30,000 a month wine habit. <laughs> showy son of a bitch. We're going to move to Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. They make great baseball bats, and that's all you need they, to know. They man. do. They, and great bourbon. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, well, anyway, they make great bourbon. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah, anyway. So we're going to be talking about Louisville, Kentucky's Slint. A really, 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 whether or not you like them, a super important band. A band whose influence, um, sort of like King Crimson, trickled out for years and years after their watershed moment, which is 1991 Spiderland. Um, we're going to play a track from that um, called Nosferatu Man. And that's not Nosferatu, comma, man. It's just Nosferatu Man. I'm not <laughs> sure what that means. Slint cannot categorically be called a math rock band. You know, they are one of the, the sort of forefathers, along with Talk Talk, of post-rock. Back when post-rock was sort of a, a primordial and, and ill-formed thing, it was a way of approaching rock music in a way that it hadn't been approached before, um, a way of sort of dissolving the traditional narrative forms of rock music, of using instruments as generators of texture rather than and melody and simply rhythm. But there are a lot of mathematical components to Spiderland. Um, it's an extraordinarily dynamic record. It was recorded... Um, sensitively as usual by Steve Albini um, mm -hmm. in Chicago. Yep. Uh, the and, and in fact, the album cover was actually captured by Will Oldham, who would go on to fame as Palace Brothers and uh, Bonnie Prince Billy and a number of other things. Yeah, that's kind of a um, famous image or infamous image. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and I think the, the the lake or wherever they're swimming was actually in Indiana, um, which uh, further confuses my, my position on whether or not they're a southern band. Indiana's um, all Midwest, man. It is. It to- totally Midwest. As a Midwesterner, yeah. I have to claim it. Yeah. No, not, no claim. I'm, I'm not claiming it. Not, I'm not psyched about that, but I have to claim it anyway. <laughs> but speaking of Indiana, uh, Ian Christie. Ian Christie's grown up all over the place, Switzerland, um, Indiana. He's a military kid, right? I think so. But I, I know that he was, uh, he's was. he got roots in Switzerland and Indiana, which not a lot of people can say probably. <laughs> but he is probably the person I first heard about Slint from. And he knew my tastes. And he kept trying to get me into Slint, and especially Spiderland. And it's, it's to this day an album that I can't get totally close to, but I have this sort of like objective appreciation for and, and kind of a deep one. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to check this out kind of in, in this context. And uh, let's listen to Nosferatu, man. I, I like to think that they just forgot the comma. Okay, maybe. Be like, that sounds like Nosferatu, man. Dude, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> Nosferatu, man. <laughs> All righty, here we go. Keep rock weird. That's some weird rock. Yeah, I like how they build on that last phrase. They kind of introduce it, they, they then they add things to it, and they kept building yep. on it and build, kind of stacking it, really. Yep. Pretty cool. Yeah, I know. I mean, the whole thing is like vertical, you know? Yeah. And, and, a lot, and, and that sort of embodies the minimalism of that record, where you don't get a lot of horizontal movement, a lot of progression. It, it develops very patiently, but they keep... 
you know, developing those ideas. And I mean, that one little like guitar strand, the distorted guitar strand that you hear near the beginning of it. I mean, to me, that is like a direct link to Robert Fripp. Oh, okay. That sounds exactly like something that Fripp would have broken out in the early 70s. Yeah, yeah. No, good call. I like that. And, and, and Fripp had a way of doing that too. Like, I mean, like the whole idea of discipline, you know, of like, of taking this sort of kernel and then just developing it over time. Yeah, it would not only cycle, but it would grow and it, he would, he would stack yeah, exactly. things on top. And yeah, oh, King Crimson. We better move on or else I'm just going to get stuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would like to think that the next band probably, in fact, I would imagine they had a lot of influence from both Breadwinner and Slint. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We're talking about Don Caballero. We are talking about Don Caballero. Yeah. So manned by the estimable Ian, at least at this time, Ian Williams and Damon Shea, who is like one of the great, unsung drummers i think i mean you know they kind of come out of punk circles like slint like breadwinner um but damon Che is just a beastly player and i would recommend anyone like go on youtube especially drummers and like watch some of the live videos from this time period and find like a more awkward drum setup yeah <laughs> I mean, it's like insane. Like, you know, like Danny Carey's always talking about like ergonomics and things. Right. Like Damon Chase, like I'm going to do the opposite of what Danny Carey says and make this the most difficult drum set to play. And then I'm just going to shred ass. <laughs> but do you, do you think he just developed it that way out of like accident? Like when he was young, it just, it just I, didn't I, occur to him to do it any other way. And I think he had to, I mean, yeah. like as a, speaking as a drummer, I cannot imagine playing a kit like that. Right. It just it makes no mechanical sense whatsoever. Right. I think he's just like a genius. You know, again, I don't use that term lightly, man. I mean, I think Damon Che is like a real original voice in drumming. Yeah. I like he's got you know how like Bill Bruford has that really like identifi- identifiable timbre in his his kit. Yeah, you hear that snare crack, and it's like, oh, that's Bill Bruford. I, I hear that in Damon Shea too. Okay, just like every yeah, yeah. I was thinking of like the accidental thing. I was thinking of like Rand Berkey from Atheist, who just oh yes. when he's a kid just kind of turned <laughs> had a, had a he's left handed and he turned a you know kind of a right handed guitar sort of upside down, didn't restring it, and he's got a very unorthodox approach as a result. And I just wondered if maybe Damon Che was maybe the same way. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe. And he's and, also like a consummate smart ass. <laughs> well, I, and I think that bleeds through in the song titles. Don't they have that song um, acting? I love me. Mm, I love me some acting. Mm, I love me some acting. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a song. Oh, title. And they have another song title, a uh, slice where you live like pie. Like, like, they were instrumental, so they could do ridiculous song titles and get away with it, right? They had a yeah, they had a song called uh, "Dick Suffers Is Furious with You," <laughs> and um, uh, an interviewer said, "What's that song about?" And Damon Chase said, "How frightening would it be if a guy whose name was Dick Suffers was furious at you?" <laughs> yeah, duh. <laughs> well, the the little snippet we're going to play is uh, from a, another ridiculously titled song called "Rollerblade <laughs> Success Story." My favorite kind of success story, really. Yeah, I, mine too, man. Yeah.
You know, I've heard some people say like, oh, I don't really get into like instrumental music or instrumental rock or math, but like that's highly listenable. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm not friends with people like that. Well, <laughs> well, you, you're biased. You're you're in a band that doesn't have vocals, <laughs> or at least hasn't for a long time. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing stuff. And uh, it is I, insane. It, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just I remember seeing them um, with the Champs in New York. Um, I went with Stephen O'Malley, and I remember talking. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves because we got the Champs coming up in a couple songs. But I remember um, Don Cab were just phenomenal live. And just to see oh, them yeah. with the champs, who were pretty on fire, and uh, Josh Smith, the guitarist of the champs, had a had a great great presence on stage. But I actually remember Josh of the champs telling me that he didn't like songs to be called tracks. So when we introduce oh. the champs song in a little bit, I'm going to introduce it as a track and hope he's listening. Take that, Josh. Take that, Josh. But uh, yeah, anything I mean, else you want to say about Don Cab? Yeah, I mean, like, there's a. I, I think. Like more than anybody else that we played, this ties back to Fracture, like more directly. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I hear it in that sort of like lattice work, calculus, guitar work. I hear it in the muscularity. I hear it in the um, in the interplay between all the musicians. All of um, that and a little bit of that paranoia or that thing. Oh, that yeah. It's just like... Oh. It, you're looking behind you. It's just not quite right. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah, yeah, I do. That's per, the perfect description. Yeah, nervousness, and um, and I think Crimson Prime Crimson had a lot of that. Yeah, for sure. But I hear that there. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. We're gonna kind of break up the uh, Don Cab Champs Love Fest here, and we're gonna go to Japan and talk about a band called Happy Family. Is this the first song by a Japanese band we've played on Radical Research? Yeah, absolutely. Really, we didn't play we didn't play anything like in the fusion episode yeah we didn't we didn't play any kenzo but huh. but like but that we've got more fusion coming up yes we do so yeah, yeah um we'll, we'll get to it but here we go we're going into japan for the first time with this happy family band let's do it man yeah this is uh from their self-titled record uh i'll try to say the song title katen ningen gayorai fuck that up i'm sure
That's truly fun listening right there. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds like it's just they're just joyous playing that stuff. It just Yeah, yeah. Got a really great spirit to it. It does. And um they're a band that's normally associated with Zoil, um, which is the fictitious <laughs> genre music developed by Magma. Mm-hmm. Um the first two Happy Family records were on Cuneiform Records. Um, the fantastic label of Steve Feigenbaum. Kind of a specialist was, for that stuff. Yeah, totally. And I mean, early on, I mean, uh, Steve and Cuneiform kind of developed a, a reputation for being, you know, the home of rock and opposition, avant prog, Zoil, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the opening guitar figure to that piece is pretty much a quotation of the guitar figure from De Futura. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a paraphrase. Yeah. Um, but for me, like, Happy Family definitely kind of, like, ties into math rock, too. Like, there's this kind of, like, loose, like, and, and I don't mean loose technically, but just, like, like you said, joyous. But, it like, it sounds kind of like punk rock in the sense that it's, like, guys that are just literally in a room, kind of like Don Cab, no overdubs, you know, no bullshit, like, just capturing their music on tape yeah it's not overproduced at all it's not no it's it's in fact it's in, incredibly urgent sounding yeah yeah um but the, yeah there's an attitude um there's a ferocity to it um that that i love and that i think it like makes it apropos of the show their first record's my favorite i really like the next one too which is called tosco but it's even a little more i don't know, manic yeah i'd say yeah maybe a little more jagged Yes, it is more jagged. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's yeah. A first Happy Family record, I recommend wholeheartedly. Good stuff. Yeah, indeed. Well, we've talked about them. We're going to listen to them, the champs or the fucking champs. Mm, I like the champs better. <laughs> I, I mean, remember. I know, why they, I know why they changed their name, but I like the champs better. Yeah, I, I, me too. I, I got turned on to them when they were champs. Um, I got this uh, CD. It was the three album. Looked weird. Couldn't quite piece out what the name was because the name is written in a really strange way, strange font. It's C for backwards for something, you know, something like that. Right. In fact, it was the Champs. I had no knowledge of this band whatsoever. Um, Tom Haley from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, sent it to me. I was in New York at the time. I live much closer to Tom now. He's a very good friend, and I just can't thank him enough for getting me into the Champs initially. It just blew my mind. I did a piece I, on them yeah, in Me- Metal Maniacs right away. I, I had to get a hold of them. And the fascinating thing about them for me was it was this weird sort of garagey band of kids, kind of indie rockish. But you could tell they loved Confessor. You can tell they loved like pre-Rick Rubin Trouble. Um, you could tell they loved Brian May from Queen. Had all these influences, mostly instrumental, probably into the Melvins. I mean, just this fascinating amalgam of stuff. And, um, yeah, stuff been... that, like, and you and Tom, you and Tom have a very interesting intersection of tastes. We do. Like I the, think the, every, the thing, like yeah. the things where you guys kind of lock in together is really interesting. Decroyton, Voivod, Trouble, uh, Confessor, Champs. Nocturnus. Nocturnus. Lately, a lot of Death and Judas Priest. So, um, clearly the, a guy with great taste. Because it mirrors my Dude, own. Dude, I, if Tom, <laughs> listening, I can't thank Tom enough for, like, turning me on to stuff. He turned me on to, like, my vitriol, mm. turned me on to 16 horsepower, mm. 
Uh, yep. I, I, I could probably go on and on. Oh, oh, Chameleons. Jesus. If he turned me on to nothing else, that would be enough. The first Chameleons record, Scripted the Bridge. So. He also turned me on to Everything, Everything, this great, yeah. great English band, uh, current band. So awesome. Uh, one of the best bands going right now. He's a huge fan. I love them, too. I, I'm, I'm proud to say that I got Tom deeply into split ends. So that was uh, nice. always a victory. Um, and speaking of victory, we're going to play... Speaking of victory. Uh, a, a bit of a... <laughs> normally the Champs songs, at least in this stage of their career, kind of on the shorter side, definitely had a lot of strange song titles. We won't list them off, but there's, there's one on the three album called The Tennis Book, which is great because Josh Smith, in the interview I did with him, told me just he just thought it'd be fun to write a complicated instrumental song about a book about tennis. And it's and, literally about a like a table it's about like a coffee table book about tennis, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's an it's an instrumental math rock song. So go, go figure. I yeah. that kind of quirk just I, I love it. It, it bulls me. Hey, there's got to be some math in tennis. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, dude, sure. Roger Federer is the watchtower of tennis playing. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And, and yeah, yeah, Rafael Nadal is the the, the spiral architect. Erstwhile, Earl, no, I'm in, I was going to say the siege is even. Oh, <laughs> perfect. The the, the rough hewn, right? Uh, but but still proficient, still techno. lovable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the champs, and we'll we'll discuss a little bit. But this is uh, this is from one of the longer songs on the three album. This is flawless victory.
The Champs have an interesting sonic aesthetic too because they deliberately don't use a bassist. And they right. do that because they're quite proud, rightly so, of their guitar tone. And they just want that, all the, you know, the sort of bottom end to kind of really shine through without the bass muddying it up. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, it's a valiant effort to bring tone to the forefront. And they're really all about that. And you can tell they love Brian May. I think you can tell that more on the four and five albums that came later. Yeah, sure. I think they're just recorded better. And I think they started to master their tone in a way that betrayed a huge Queen influence. Or I should say May influence anyway. And I normally, like, I hate the Doors because they don't have a bass player. I probably wouldn't like I, them. I hate the Doors for a lot of other reasons. But yeah, yeah I, I, I probably, like I say, I probably wouldn't like them anyway. <laughs> but, like, I hate them more because they don't have a bassist. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I mean, they, like, the champs totally pull that off. I remember being insulted by the Doors when I realized they didn't have a bassist. I just was like, I, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> well, even going to bother with them. This was, like, early on when I'm kind of forming my opinions about rock, you know. And uh, so uh, they got off on the wrong foot the, with me. The, but I, I still look. arrogance got like a trebly guitar and a farfisa yeah and you yeah. really think that jim morrison has a baritone that's capable of providing a foundation for your music no <laughs> you're wrong i do not equivocate on my hatred for the doors radical research is exclusively anti-doors <laughs> it's a psa it's our fucking psa yeah fuck the doors anyway yeah champs a lot of great reasons to love them a lot of great reasons to dislike the doors. <laughs> Keep the hate mail coming, people. Radical Research Podcast at gmail.com. However, Jeff and I both like Algis Huxley. So it's not his fault that they appropriated like his work for their name. Yeah. So I just want to put that out there. This is true. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also the world's uh, foremost expert on Ray Bradbury rock and metal tie-ins. In, indeed you are. Jeff. I've done a few of those lately, as you know. <laughs> we'll maybe do a little sidebar show about that one day. <laughs> I got, I got to find a third, and then, we'll, then I'll be the expert. Yeah, anyway, The Champs, great band. Check them out. Uh, Thor is Like a Mortal is probably uh, worth the price alone if you buy that album. That's on the four album, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it, yeah it's incredible. It's a guitar-only piece. Yeah, incredible. It's, incredible bit yeah. of or- orchestration and tone. Beautiful stuff. Yep. So our final song for the night capping our version of math rock and certainly we could do 20 shows about this and include some other bands uh, and, and have fun drawing from different eras and disciplines and subgenres. but we're going to go with one of your favorite bands one that you turned me on to and uh one that i love dearly yeah minus the bear and this is this could be a stretch but i i think that we can justify it okay so justify yeah. away okay so minus the bear a band that was born out of Dave Nudson's departure from Botch, uh, a very conspicuously mathematical uh, post-hardcore band from Seattle. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so Minus the Bear early on developed this, like, like this pointillist, like, rock aesthetic that, like, comes, I, for me, kind of out of, like, 80s King Crimson. Um, it's this intricate, like tapped lattice work, uh, you know, guitar sound. Um, it's not mathematical in a way that like, in a way like, um, confessor or breadwinner. Um, but I think that it has a deep attention to the fundamental mathematics in music. It's certainly early on. It does. 
Yeah, I think the early, earlier music reflected that more than the later. Yeah, I mean, later on, um, they developed a better pop sensibility. They became just astounding songwriters, in my estimation, and in, and in Jeff's, too, I'm sure. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just an incredible band. But early on, I mean, like, you hear this really, really intricate guitar work between uh, Dave and Jake, and it's it's mathy in a in a perhaps more subtle way than we've conveyed on this show so far. But I think a justifiable terminus to the show. I think we have to look at math rock from all sides because it's kind of like what we were saying about tech metal. Well, Oblivion Nemesis that fits in there if you if you want to justify widening the parameter just a little bit. It absolutely fits, and I and I think minus the bear, especially the early stuff. I'm all on board with what you said. I, I think I completely agree with you. We're going to listen to a little bit from the hilariously titled... Another band that has amazing song titles. Yeah, I mean, them, the champs, and Don Caballero probably kind of win the day with, with that kind of nonsense. It's, it's a lot sure. of fun just reading the song titles alone. <laughs> <laughs> Up there with early disharmonic orchestra, I think. Uh, this, is a, this is a little snippet from a song called Women We Haven't Met Yet. <laughs> from the Highly Refined Pirates album.
also, in addition to their mathematical uh, proficiency, I think it's some of the most beautiful music that I own. And they have a hypnotic quality for me. Yeah, absolutely. Just something I can't wait to sink into, and I, I kind of get deeply into that listen. And um, there's a brightness. There's kind of a yeah. There's there's something um, it's like a, an open heartedness about it too. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like there's this surface irony, but like once you peel that back, this is a band that's deeply invested in the beauty of their work. Yep. Yep. And sadly, no more. I think uh, as of what last uh, year they uh, they became yeah, defunct. Yeah, they went out high, man. How's that final EP? I, that's the only thing I don't have by them. Um, it's cool. It's understated. Um, it's not nearly as good as Voids. Okay, well, that was a high note. Yeah, fucking amazing. Yeah, uh, in in all of its lateral stepness, it's uh, still an amazing album. They, like, well, that's the thing about them is like normally, I mean, you know, you and I are kind of a similar mind there. Like, we like to see bands progress, but like they're one of those bands that kind of found, you know, their place like on Planets of Ice. And they were able to move laterally, and it was still super satisfying. I think more on Omni. I think Omni is when they yeah, maybe, 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 really yeah. refined. Yeah. Planets of Ice has more of a progressive edge, I guess, that they it, kind of it, snipped it out. It has more of an edge. Yeah, they snipped that Generally. out. They snipped out a little bit of ambition and traded it for, I think, pop sensibility uh, with Omni and then Infinity Overhead and, and Voids. And clearly, we're trying to sell you on Minus the Bear. So if you liked what you heard, buy their records. Head to Discogs.com or uh, any uh, other fine music retailer and get the real thing. Thank you for listening. I, If you're a Doors fan, you can, again, please write us at RadicalResearchPodcast at gmail.com and tell us how much you hate us, how much you love the Doors, why you think the Doors are amazing. Uh, and uh, we will possibly publicly reprint what you say, but we will never do an episode about the Doors. Plus, yeah, we hate the doors. We try to do things that haven't been done in podcast land musically, and I think there have probably been many, 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 many podcasts on the doors. Probably. Enough of that. Join us next time for episode 29. We are going to head to Germany once again, and uh, this time it's going to be a survey of Mekong Delta's work from 1987 to 1994. We consider that the prime period. And uh, this is a fantastic progressive thrash band that had um, a lot of influence from kind of modern classical, really. Join us in two weeks.